Okay, hope you have your handout. It is the last, it's hard to believe, but this is the last one of this session. And um, we were actually spending some time yesterday talking about where we were going next. And um, I'm just gonna tell you so that if somebody decides to change their mind, you can know it's not my fault. Uh, I wanted to do this one. Uh, What it looks like we'll be doing starting in the fall is we're gonna be looking at the pastoral epistles and going back to more of an intense Bible study. And so <clears throat> in August when we come back, we'll be doing First Timothy, and then we'll just divide up uh, from August uh, through all the way, probably next May, we'll do First Timothy, Titus, and Second Timothy. And so that's kind of what our plan is right now. We still have to divide it all up, but really uh, appreciate you guys. Um, uh, your heart is what really inspires me. Um, uh, I've probably have heard me say this in the past. Uh, I love teaching. I don't know if you can tell. I really enjoy teaching. Um, And so being at the college, I kind of remember when I first went to the college and I thought this is probably where I need to go because these people want to learn. And I I loved it. I really did. I enjoyed my time there quite a bit. Um, And then when I would travel to churches like Sunnybrook, and I would have an opportunity to teach something like this, there was just something different. It wasn't just young people taking it and, uh, and, and needing to learn it for their, whatever you call it. And I love training pastors. I really have a special heart, part of my heart for that. But there was always something more enjoy- enjoyable preaching at the Sunnybrooks and at the First Christians. There was always just something different. Um, and there's the number of people that would come up and say, man, I wish we could get something like this at our church. And it was always kind of sad because, um, you know, we're really blessed and I'm, I'm not talking about me. We've got just a lot of really good teachers at Sunnybrook and I'm so grateful to God for that. And it's because we definitely love God's word. And we probably don't do this enough and I'm just gonna do it real quick. But you know, when we talk about this Go, Gather, Grow, we're really serious about it because it helps us understand what God ultimately desires for us. Um, And we don't wanna be a church that you could just stereotype and say, yeah, all they really care about is whatever, right? All all Jim cares about is missions. That's why he was in Thailand or all Jim really cares about. No, I mean, all I really care about honestly is Jesus. He is the one that I care, care, care about. And he tells me that I need to go and so I believe and that's why we go, right? He tells us to go. And that's why we gather, big fan of life groups and biblical community and what that means. And then it's that last one that kind of where this fits in. You know, we, we talk about, hey, is, is, is what we're doing at the church, is it, is it working, is it functioning? And it's not just, hey, Jim likes to teach, so let's give him classes. I don't think it's that at all. It's that we believe that the teaching of God's word, the understanding of God's word, and then it's always the application of God's word just matters. It matters a lot. And so I really don't need to teach <clears throat> as much as we need to grow. There's really a difference. So it's not about Jim teaching or Ryan teaching or Paul teaching or whoever. It is about us growing in our understanding of who God is. And so that's why these encounter times uh, really are something that we try to focus on and I think we'll continue to do um, because what we really care about is not how do we get more people? I, I'm even fine with um, you and you, you, know, you can come for the majority of them and then you miss one. I get people apologize to me. It's like, no, I... I totally get it. I know busy schedules. Um, We just believe in kind of like holistic 
intentional teaching so that we would know the word of God, we would be encouraged by the word of God, our marriages would be strengthened, our community would be strengthened. Our goal is to glorify God in all of this. And so I hope that this series has been a blessing to you. Um, I have loved it because I, as a child, this was probably some of my favorite books to read over and over and over and over again. And um, mildly embarrassed to tell you there like four or five times this semester, I'm like, I didn't know that. <laughs> like I had no idea that at all. Like it was like the first time I had heard that or noticed that in the, in the biblical account, which I just get excited about actually. I think that's always fun when I, when I realize, wow, how did I not know that? So today we are going to be looking at the final Kings. I'm not going to be singing the final countdown. Um, although I do like that song a lot, but I'm not going to be doing that. But we are going to be talking about kind of that, that final stint in the southern kingdom. So this is, again, Judah is the last remaining tribe, tribes, right? Judah and Benjamin, the last remaining tribes. There would be a border that would roughly go along like this, and Jerusalem would stand roughly there. Um, and Judah is still a nation, and the northern part has been destroyed. Its capital, which was on kind of a mountain peak, would have been about there. And it was the city known as Samaria, where we get the idea of Samaritans. That had been destroyed. And if you remember the year, these are just, I think, important dates to know. 722 BC. So David, roughly 1,000. Moses, roughly 1444, uh, roughly 1444 BC is uh, the exodus and the giving of the law. Uh, David is roughly uh, 1,000 BC, and then the northern tribes are gone. Assyrians come in from the, this side. There's a big desert here, right, Syria, and then right now modern-day Jordan. But the Assyrians come in, sweeping down from the north, and they destroy the capital in 722 BC. And by that time, it's just real tense in the entire area. There is also kind of a, kind of a resurgence of a nation down here, which is what? Egypt. And so you've got a resurgence. So you've got the Assyrians, who are really, really strong during this time period. The Assyrians. Then you have the Babylonians, who are just kind of right behind them, coming up. So you have the Persian Gulf, then the area of the, of the Babylonians to the north of them, the area of the Medes. And then you've got, beside them, you've got the Assyrians and Nineveh, which would be a little bit um, northwest. Of, of Babylon. So you've got Babylon, which is just beginning to be uh, a, a nation. It's beginning to kind of get its stuff together. And then you've got Egypt. And these become the power players. And with a desert here and powers here, then the way that you deal with and the way that you even get tributaries and the way that you even kind of finance this, this growing uh, empire that you want to do is that you travel and as, as the Assyrians want to fight here and as the Egyptians want to fight here, who's in the middle? That's, that's, that's the Holy Land. And so a lot of this is going on. And so kind of at the back story, and I, I picked this up about three or four years ago, I never really noticed how much of the prophets were giving judgments. I mean, if you read the prophets, I don't know if you've had a chance to read that. You read through the prophets, all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere, it says, oh, Egypt, you shall be laid waste and you shall be destroyed and you put your hope in and God, God's gonna get you and this is why you're gonna be judged. And why? Where, where did this come from? Why, why all of a sudden did the prophet go off on Egypt's judgment? Is just God mad at them for like some arbitrary reason? 
And when you take that snippet and you put it in its historical context, what you actually see is that at that time, there was a king in Jerusalem, and he's trying to weigh whose side are we going to be on? So you've got the Assyrians on one side, and then you've got the Egyptians on the other. On the heels of that, you've got the Babylonians behind them. And so Judah, who are we going to pick? Who are we going to line up with? Well, let's, why don't we line up with Babylon? I mean, at least they'll keep Assyria at bay. And maybe if we line up with Egypt, then we can kind of go against them. And so these judgments aren't just random. It's, so instead of following this covenant which I gave you, instead of actually believing that I will reward those who seek me and I will punish those who rebel against, instead of doing that, your plan is to go down here and to get an alliance. Okay, well, let me tell you what's gonna happen to them. Like your plan is, and that's a, that's a key critical component. So when you read through the prophets and you realize that these judgments are coming down, they're, they're legitimate judgments, but it's, um, oh boy, I wish, this is where it'd be easier if I was like preaching in Canada. So imagine we're in Canada, okay? So we're cold, um, I'm even more annoying. So we got this Canadian thing going on. And as I'm, as I'm describing to you what's happening, and so how's Canada? We're the, the Russians or the Chinese are coming after us, okay? And so where are we gonna go? Well, we should, America's right there. Let's trust in them. Let's hope in them. Let's, let's believe that they can help us. Let's send somebody to Washington. And you really, like, you don't think we should have, like, a spiritual reform? No, I don't think that's gonna, it's too close. We can't fix it. Too, it's, it's, we, we need to, and all of a sudden we get this letter, hey, this is what's going to happen to America. Okay, so you're taking away the one place that I thought I could find some protection. Yeah. So that's what's happening here. And that's why it's, it's, it's really helpful to go in and to read the prophets and to recognize these judgments are not just random and they're not just arbitrary. God is doing something much bigger. It really helped, just personally, it really helped the Old Testament begin to gel a little bit. Because right, you're reading these huge prophetic books and you're going, I don't even understand where I am now. I'm lost. That's what happens. But when you begin to recognize the, the backstory, it begins to weave together. So here's what I thought we would do since if I were to just do the kings, we'd be done in about 10 minutes. Uh, I thought it would actually be good for us to just kind of see what's happening in terms of the, the larger story. And so I want to begin tonight by looking at the major prophets that we see during this time period. And I'd actually like to read to you some of these sections that are, are, are really quite interesting. So the first one, and I'm, and I'm doing these somewhat in chronological order, the first one is Isaiah, the prophet. And Isaiah is down here. He's a southern prophet. And Isaiah, we learned about uh, last week or the week before, Isaiah actually comes along and he comes and speaks somewhat during this time period. Remember King Hezekiah who led some of the reforms and the Assyrian king is threatening King Hezekiah and Isaiah steps in and he says, hey, don't worry about him. Like you don't need to worry about Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser is, is not your concern. You just stay focused. God will take care of Shalmaneser, okay? And Hezekiah is strengthened and God protects. He steps in and protects. Now, in that moment, he's still offering this challenge. And again, prophets don't say, hey, guess who's gonna win the World Series? Hey, guess who's going to, you know, guess what the weather's gonna be like? Hey, guess what the stock market's gonna be? That's not what the prophets do. Prophets are covenant reminders, so they come along, and you know, if you had a prophet for your marriage, it would literally be, someone walks in, Paul Weiss walks in, and he says, Jim, August 19th, 1989. Was it two, two o'clock in the afternoon? One, seven, one? 
Okay. So one o'clock in the afternoon, August 19th, it was a Saturday. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Do you remember the room that you were in? Yes. Do you remember what you vowed? Yes, I remember what I vowed. Okay. I want you to recite it to me. Okay. How are you doing on that? Okay. I could really work on this and this and that. But her. Okay. No, no, no. Don't worry about her. Don't worry about her. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this covenant reminder, this covenant reminder, which is a call, the prophets call to repent, okay? Now again, this is where we get into trouble is because if you believe that the prophet Isaiah came along and your job is to repent because of the bad things that you do, that's just not very accurate. Like it's not bad things, it's not, well, you said a bad word and you smoked a cigarette um, and then you, like, when you were driving kind of recklessly and then you made an obscene gesture to somebody and that's why God's after you. That's not it. Like, go back and read the Bible. That's actually, those are all symptomatic of a bigger problem. And we, as a church, have spent way too long, and when I say church, I mean maybe us, but definitely the church, big picture, spend way too many time dealing with symptoms, Right? instead of dealing with the hard issue. And so the prophets actually usually didn't just come along and say, hey guys, you need to be nicer, you need to be kinder, you need to stay married, you need to, that's not what they did. They came along and they said, listen, let me remind you of the covenant. Let me remind you of Mount Sinai. Let me remind you what God actually said and what God has promised to do. And so there's a couple of these sections I wanna read through. And this first one, um, I, I, actually, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm gonna kind of read some scripture tonight. Isaiah chapter one Beginning in verse two, so you can get a kind of a feel for what it would be like. And again, remember, probably Hezekiah-ish would be the king at the time. Isaiah chapter one, beginning in verse, I think verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that's Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all in capitals. For Yahweh has spoken, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Notice kind of the parallel. Why will you be struck down? Really? Why are you rebelling? That's why you're gonna be struck down. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil, meaning you just are hurt and you never heal. You're just, um, you're just constantly staying in your sickness. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So these really special things and everything else around it is gone, okay? It's like, that's what it's like. If Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to our teachings, O God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls 
or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and, new moon and Sabbath, which is, by the way is a big deal in the Old Testament. And here he says, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations or the gathering of people to worship, which God says, you need to call these convocations. Now he's saying, these things, these calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Hear that, I love that phrase. I cannot, this is the Lord speaking, like I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. What's he saying? Like you guys know how to come to church, right, and do the thing, and play the part, and you walk out, and you don't remember what you just did. So you are people of iniquity who know how to play the spiritual role. And if you want to know what God has no time with, what God does not appreciate in any way, shape, or form, is that kind of haughtiness or the kind of rebellion where you don't even understand where you are. By the way, you've heard this statement. It's from the Revelation. Um, Hot and cold, I would rather you be. If you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Which is what? Like, you don't get it. I, I would rather judge people who are just out and out wicked. At least they have integrity, meaning oneness of character. It's bad character, right? Integrity just means oneness of character. So when we talk about a person having integrity, we usually mean in the, in the complimentary way. But to have integrity just means to be an integrated being. You can be all bad and be integrated. You're, you're bad all the way through. And God is saying, I cannot believe, this, this is convicting, that I cannot believe that you would have a solemn assembly and then you would be workers of iniquity. So that is his, and then I've got a few more verses I wanna to read to you here. I just love that one there. Um, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. You wash, your, your, your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case, and then I have to read verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good food of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. And what I love about this picture here is like God takes sin seriously, particularly covenantal rebellion. And you can't just go through the motions. My, my wife helped me with this a number of years ago. I kind of thought that how relationships work is I do whatever I want, and then when she gets mad at me, I just buy her something, right? And then we're good, okay? And so I thought this is how it happened. I remember the first time we ever had a fight. We were dating. We were both in high school, and we got into a fight, and I just I felt terrible about it, and so I tried to buy her something. And I just remember at a very young age, she was like, what's this? well, this is just kind of makes it okay again, right? Like, I'm gonna go back to being an idiot. That's kind of how the, that, isn't that the plan? 
And I just remember her even helping, coaching me along, just saying, no, like, I, that doesn't work. And actually, if anything, my wife told me this, she says, if anything, like, when you buy me stuff at that moment, it, it, it's, it's actually, like, worse. It's actually worse. And I, at first, I'm going, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a nice sweater, right? But she's going, no, because it, it seems to mean, like, you don't love me. And you're trying to bypass what I really want, which is for you to, right, to be this person of integrity or whatever it was, right? And I just, I'm a gift giver and I didn't quite understand. And then the more I look at it, the more I realize, yeah, like, I don't need my kids to do what they want and then mow my grass. I don't want my kids to be rebellious and then, like, smile at me and be sweet and kind. It's like, no, actually, now I'm really upset. And this is what God is describing as being absolutely terrible. So the first thing I note is that Isaiah definitely prophesies against Judah for social justice issues, okay? But those social justice issues, which our generation, this recent generation is really picking up on, and I think it's great, but it is all in not just these bad things, but it is a covenant that is being rejected. And I love the fact that when you read the prophets over and over and over again, it's judgment, 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 and then like hope, and then judgment, and then hope. It's almost like none of the prophets can just give all of this. Read, read Isaiah, and it's just like everybody dies, and then a little tree begins to grow, and the Lord remembers. <laughs> it's just like, it really is. It's like, God, you just can't leave it destroyed, can you? No, I can't, because I made a promise to Abraham because I made a promise to David. Like, it can be a real encouraging thing. Just don't give up halfway through the judgment. Because in the middle of this major judgment against Israel, one of my favorite verses of scripture, come let us reason, let us think about this. Though our sins be like, they will be white as, and we know where that's ultimately coming from, right? That's ultimately coming from who Jesus Christ is. Um, also, chapter 31 of the book of Isaiah, great chapter, he goes off on prophecies ultimately against Israel's, or against Judah's destruction um, because of their idolatry. So that's the core. Israel chooses to replace God and to put something else in his place, and when that happens, they will oppress the poor, they will take care of it. That's why when you go back and if you ever get a chance, if you ever read through the, uh, the, or the first five books of the Bible, particularly like Exodus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, It'll say, care for the poor. And the answer is, because I am the Lord your God. You ever notice that? It says it over and over again. You shall care for widows and orphans. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. And I always read that. I'm like, okay, like, what, does that, what does that have to do with it? And we rem- when we remember who God is, and we remember that he made them, and we remember how he loves them, then in the end, it's just a natural, natural thing, Right? I'm gonna love them too. I'm gonna care about them too. Why? Because Yahweh is my God. And so this becomes a natural extension of who they are. So both of these things go side by side. Number two, Habakkuk the prophet. Four chapters, a lot smaller by Isaiah 66 chapters. Habakkuk's a lot shorter. Um, Habakkuk is going to be um, prophesying right during our, the, the kind of the thick of it that we're gonna be going through tonight. And Habakkuk has got some really fun stuff. Um, it, the first thing Habakkuk does in chapter one, God tells him, I'm going to come and I'm sending. The Assyrians are going to be somewhat wiped out um, at the Battle of Carchemish in 605. And the Babylonians are gonna kind of then rise to power and they're going to sweep down. And God is telling Habakkuk the prophet that Babylon is going to be the one who's going to ultimately destroy them. And Habakkuk, or, and Habakkuk basically says, 
does it make sense? I mean, this is that honest questioning with God. Does it make sense that our people, which have their problems, which have, their, which, which have failed, but does it make any sense at all that a judgment would come from a people less righteous than us? He asks it. And you know what God's answer is? And this is usually God's answer. Like it or don't like it. Okay? You know what his answer is? I'm God. Right? Now you might say it nicer. How about this? I'm God. Okay? But his, his, literally his answer is like, you know you can't question me in this, right? Like you don't know. Uh, we, we really can't act like children where we demand our parents give us an answer. Right? And, and sometimes parents don't give children answers, not because they don't love them or not because, it, sometimes because they just, it wouldn't help. I remember how many times I wanted my dad to give me an answer as to why he was doing certain things and my dad just sometimes didn't give me. Sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. Sometimes God does and then sometimes God doesn't. And in this particular instance, the answer with Habakkuk is, um, I'm just going to do it because I'm the Lord. And this, this is why this is going to happen. And I think Habakkuk knew. I think Habakkuk's complaint is, um, is not so much like, wow, I think we're awesome. He just still can't understand why he would use a more corrupt nation to rebuke him. I want to read to you just the final words. Habakkuk 3 at the very end is one of my favorite um, sections of scripture because it literally reminds me of a prophet who has been given a difficult task, who is going to wait for the Lord, even though it's kind of swirling like crazy town all around him. So right near the end, Habakkuk's third chapter, he, oh, did I say four chapters? There's actually only three chapters. Three, in the, at the end of the third chapter, um, he really describes kind of what's happening. He describes, uh, we'll go all the way back to say um, verse, uh, verse 13 of uh, Habakkuk 3. You went out for the salvation of your people, for salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him in the bare thigh to the neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And that's the description of the destruction of his people. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait patiently, actually that's the NIV, I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us, because God says, hey, don't worry, they'll get it too, but you need to recognize this is the judgment that's going to come. And then verse 17, and I want you to hear this. Think covenant. Think of what God has promised. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, which are all the covenant promises of God being. So even though everything is disappearing, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so his, his, his answer is, I'm just going to wait and trust that God knows what he is going to do. So the great prophet Habakkuk, three chapters, fun one to read. Next one is the great prophet Jeremiah. I'm gonna have to pick up the pace here. Jeremiah the prophet comes along um, he is from 627 all the way down to 582. So he is going to be, the, the destruction of the, of, the, of the south 
is going to happen in 586 BC. So Isaiah will never see it. Jeremiah the prophet, though, will. And Jeremiah actually begins his lesson or his, uh, his, his, his prophetic uh, ministry with describing these future events where Judah is going to be utterly destroyed. I think this is interesting is he's the one that steps in and we're gonna talk about him in a moment. He's the one that steps in and tells Josiah, this new young king, hey, you need to get your stuff together and you really need to be about this reform or else God is going to judge you. So a lot of the reform that we see in some of these kings, we need to recognize a lot of it comes about because prophets like Jeremiah are stepping in and preaching covenant repentance to them. Jeremiah fights consistently against the false prophets. I wanna, I wanna read this section to you actually um, because I think sometimes when we, uh, I remember one time, I, I, 2008, 2009, I was in the Psalms just studying and I'll never forget because I was I'm reading in the Psalms and David has all these enemies I don't know if you remember, Larry, um, where are you, brother? I don't know if you remember. I, I started, I, I remember writing the elders a couple of like emails and just stuff saying, now why don't we have any enemies? I kind of went on this, why don't we have enemies kick? Like, why don't we have enemies? Um, it seems like Jesus had enemies, right? It seems like Peter had enemies and David had enemies and I can't think of any enemies that I have. And again, I don't know if I'm supposed to go out and find enemies. Like, I'm, that's not, I'm, I actually, I think God has called me through the gospel to even be winsome. I'm trying, I promise. Like, there's gotta be a winsomeness in it, but also, like, our world is opposed to us. So there should also be enemies. And I, I get concerned sometimes when we don't have this. But Jeremiah was in the thick of it, and I wanna read to you beginning in verse 13. And just remember how tense it would be and I, I, to really kind of get you to feel it. I, I feel this. I don't know what it would be like if God were to say, I need you to stand up and talk about how bad America is and I, wa- I just want you to remind them on a, on a constant basis that Islam is going to destroy them and I'm the one orchestrating all of that. What? <laughs> I've got to do that? Do you know where I live? I live in Stillwater. Like, do you understand like, how like, patriotic we are? Yeah, I know, just still need you to do it. Okay, <laughs> I, I don't think this is gonna go well. God will say, well, for you, it's not gonna go well, but I'll be fine. And Jeremiah's got a rough go of it. And he is literally preaching Israel, the people of God, their destruction at the hands of the wicked. And that's what Jeremiah has to preach. And guess what? He's not the only one preaching. There's other guys coming along going, don't listen to him. Look at verse 13. And then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, so now he's complaining about the false prophets. The prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, says Yahweh concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them and say, sword and famine shall not come upon the land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. That's intense. 
But Jeremiah is literally, I mean, imagine, it's, it's, it's easy to look at this history, right? But imagine you're in the middle of it. And imagine you got two, I don't know, candidates who are going to stand in front of you and are going to try to give you a preferred vision of the future. And one comes and says, hey, God's got nothing but destruction for us because we've been wicked. We have rebelled against him. We've been a bad people and God's going to come and judge us and you'll never guess who's gonna destroy us, Canadians. And then somebody else comes along and goes, yeah, I can't believe he said that. That's not even, that's, that's, that is so unpatriotic. I'm telling you, we are a great nation. We've always been a great nation. We've always been God's people. Don't listen to him. Do not listen to him. Who are you more inclined to listen to? Right? Me too. I'm not going, what's wrong with you people? No, me too. I like this guy. I like what he has to say. The other guy, we should stone that guy. And I, it, it scares me sometimes. When I would, if I were to hear Jeremiah and Micaiah, the, the false prophet, I, I think I would take Micaiah 10 times out of 10. And yet I would have been wrong 10 times out of 10. So he is fighting against false prophets. Um, I also love this. He also suffers when I say I love this, it's complicated, but he really is, is one, of the, one, of the, one of the prophets that goes through some of the most difficult um, adversity. And again, he is around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem where it's the most intense. So let me give you these, and I'm gonna kind of say them real quick. Uh, you've got the list of texts. In Jer- you can go back and look at them, so you have them all listed there. In Jeremiah 20, verse two, he is beat and put in like stocks. In Jeremiah chapter 26, verse seven through nine, after he preaches, they say this man should be killed and he has a death threat leveled against him. In chapter 36, verse 23, after writing out this long letter, they take it to King Jehoiachin and they read it and after they're done a column and it's complicated. It's not like, oh yeah, he just downloaded that and printed it off, you know, that's not it. So his scribe has written it all out. And after they read a column, they burn it. And then they read a column, and then they burn it. And so the prophecy of Jeremiah is burned. And you know what God says to Jeremiah and his scribe after that? Write it again. And they write it again. That's why we have it. But the original, the king burned. Um, Chapter 38, verses 1 through 6, he's dropped in a cistern, like a, a place of refuse and water and He's dropped in there and and almost left for dead. And then finally in chapter 43, he's taken to Egypt in somewhat of an exile after the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is what the prophet Jeremiah, and now can you understand why prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 20, oh, it's my phone off here, 20, 23, 20. I think it's 20, Jeremiah 20, I love this. He says, I really do love this. He says, oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. It wasn't good when they said, oh, look, talking about his birth, his mother will have a son. No, curse be that day. I wish I would have crawled out of the womb dead because, Lord, you have deceived me. Everywhere I go, I preach this really, really tough message, and I just, I can't even bear it. And yet, if I say I will not speak any longer of the word of the Lord, it is like a fire inside of me. It is like a fire deep inside my bones and I try to keep it down, but indeed I cannot. And then he ends by saying, and the, and the Lord God is with me like this rod of iron and he is my buttress and he is my strength. And I remember reading that and going, ah, I think that's kind of how it should feel to be a Christian. 
It's hard and it's tough, it's difficult. I don't know if I can do this, but I really can't not do this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't know if I can do this. The other thing though, I just can't fathom not doing this. And we go to the Lord for strength. And then lastly, Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel is 593 to 562. So Ezekiel is going to be carried away. By the way, that's kind of when he prophesies. That's not just his birth and death date, by the way. He didn't die at a very young age. That's when his, prof, or he, when his ministry is going on. He is probably taken away in 605. The Babylonians come down and begin to deport people, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, taking them back to Babylon. Ezekiel goes back. So Jeremiah prophesies here. Isaiah prophesies here. Habakkuk prophesies here. Ezekiel prophesies here in Babylon. So he is already exiled. And uh, talking about an interesting book, it begins with like this vision of God, which is a great chapter. And as it continues, you've got a number of warnings against Israel's shepherds. You've got a number of warnings against their judgment. And so he is constantly speaking against Israel, or Judah is going to fall, and the temple particularly is going to be destroyed. And then I thought I would just kind of include this in the bottom, because a lot of people don't know this chapter, but it's a very difficult chapter. And basically what happens is Ezekiel is told in the morning, uh, today your wife is going to die. And what I want you to do is I want you, you, you can, he says, you can sigh but not out loud. But you will not mourn for her. You will not do the customary. You won't do any of that. You will go on like nothing happened. And then Ezekiel says, <laughs> And so I went home, and I, he was on his normal day, and that evening she died. And I did as the Lord commanded, and I did not grieve. And they went, everybody came up to him and said, okay, what are you doing? Like, why are you acting like this? And they asked him, what is the sign? Why are you doing this? They, they knew that it was from God. And God said, because the temple is about to be destroyed, and I will not grieve over it. And Ezekiel became this picture of it which is kind of a fascinating, fascinating story. Prophets had to do some difficult things. So it's not just Hosea uh, who ended up marrying a very troubled young lady. It's not just Isaiah who ended up walking around for three and a half years naked to prove that this is how silly you look in front of God. God has no problem asking people to be fools for his name's sake. And I know we're excited about our own dignity, but when I think about the long line of uh, people like Jeremiah and like Hosea, boy, there's a lot of growing up that I think I need to do. So let me wrap up by just kind of going through these last run of kings. And the first one is by far and away the greatest, King Josiah. Um, that's why you'll, have, you'll meet a lot of Josiahs today, right? Josiah's a real popular name. You don't get a lot of Jehoiakims or Eliakims, uh, Jehoahaz. You don't get those, but you do get Josiahs. Why? Because he was an amazing king. He begins to reign at the age of eight, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord like his father David before him. When he was 18 years old, so it doesn't just, you know, you don't get an eight-year-old king who's awesome. Sometimes it takes a while. At the age of 18, he began to order that the house of the Lord be cleaned. And then he says, and I want you to take the money that's coming in, and I want you to clean it. I want you to make sure that we're, we're doing this right. And while they're doing it, these priests begin to find, um, or they find a copy of the book of the law. And one priest reads it to another priest, and as they're reading it, and you can imagine this, they're reading it and they're going, okay, this is the problem. 
This is why we're in trouble. This is why our nation's a mess. This is why we're, this is it. This is right here. And so they go to Josiah and they say, hey, we gotta tell you something. I don't know if you've heard about this, which is fascinating. God has been working with these people for how long? And the one thing they don't, how many of you, when you, they don't have the law. How many of you, when you think about the Old Testament, you think like, oh yeah, there's probably still going to church and there's a Bible in every pew. And they, no, I mean, a lot of people don't know about this and have never heard about it. So you've got in 1444, the establishment of the Passover, okay? Somewhere between Solomon and 586 BC. So a little after this in here, we only have record of twice it being held. Hezekiah reestablishes it and they're amazed. And then Josiah is going to do it again. Until that time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they never remembered the Passover. That's how patient the Lord is. That's how kind he is. And so Josiah finds this copy of the law and he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And he goes after it. He absolutely goes hog wild and he begins to tear down things and he begins to reestablish things and he reinstitutes the Passover. And so it was a great, um, it was a great reform. I mean, things start doing very, very well again. And then I love this verse from 2 Kings 23. Uh, the writer in Kings, not Chronicles. Remember, Kings is the one that does a much more sympathetic picture down here. And even though the Kings, the writer of Second Kings doesn't have a bad thing to say about, Jer- about Josiah, I thought this was kind of an interesting take on it. It says, but his faithfulness could not stop the coming destruction because of the, the extent of Judah's sin. So even though you have a great king, it's still not going to fix it. And destruction is coming, and it's actually coming rather quickly. This is one of my most disturbing stories in the Bible. I hate this story. Because what happens is, Egypt is now going to battle the Babylonians. And they're going to have a battle at a site, and you would, you, you, I don't know if you'll pick up the name or not. I, I, we actually were there a couple of years ago. Um, it is actually, there's a Tel Megiddo. Tell Megiddo. When you hear that word Megiddo, anybody hear another word kind of associated with Megiddo? Armageddon, they're actually similar words. Megiddo is the valley, which is the valley of Jezreel. There's a mountain, Mount Carmel is right here, and there's this mountain ridge called the Valley of Jezreel. And supposedly, right, the Battle of Armageddon, that final one, there's this, there's this valley, and right there is kind of a major site for a lot of battles. And why? Because as Egypt goes here, and as Babylon goes here, hey, why don't we just meet at Megiddo? And we'll fight right there in that valley, in that plain. And so we were actually on that tell. Remember that? That's where Ryan and Smith and I were taking all those pot shirts was at the, at the tell of Megiddo. And so that is where this battle ensues. And the, the uh, Pharaoh Neco, N-E-C-O, is on his way to battle. And Josiah basically says, I'm gonna fight you. And I, it's interesting. So here's this incredible king and Josiah wants to fight him. And, and King Neco or Pharaoh Neco says to him, um, the Lord God has told me that you need to just stay out of this. We don't, we don't have anything here. But if not, then you will die. And I guess he didn't believe him. This great king. And he didn't believe him. So Josiah goes to Megiddo. He battles and he fights and he dies. He's killed with arrows. And they put him in a chariot and they take him back to Jerusalem. And he is the last of the good kings. I kind of wished his life was different. It's like, seriously, why does he have to die like that? But even good people 
when they decide they're gonna kind of line up on the wrong side of things are sometimes casualties of the destruction that is going on around us. So um, Jeremiah couldn't avoid it. He has some serious difficulties in his life and same with King Josiah. Um, One little tiny story, which I don't think I included on here, which is really kind of a neat story. On his way up to the battle, he stops at Samaria. And do you remember the... um, King Jeroboam, when the first bat, or when the first, uh, when he first took over, ten fifty ish, when he took over uh, the northern tribes, he built two altars. One was down here at Shechem, and then one was yeah, because it wasn't Samaria, it was at Shechem, and then they put the other one at, at Dan. And actually, when we were in Israel, we saw the site where the calf was, like literally. On this altar, they, 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 they can still, they have actually found where it would have been. It's not there, but they, they found where it would have been. While Josiah is on his way up to, to battle here, he comes across this and he just starts burning in, in terms of uh, to get rid of the idolatry, he starts burning this. And he, would, he, he finds the altar, he burns it. But that is a major prophecy in the Old Testament. There was an old guy that kind of walks along and he says, a king is going to come and his name is going to be Josiah and he is going to destroy this place. And Josiah fulfills that prophecy when he actually does that. So it's kind of an interesting, for those of you that like prophecy and how it all fits together, um, Josiah actually fulfills one of the major prophecies of the Old Testament. The king right after him, which doesn't last very long, so this last bit's just gonna have to move quicker. Jehoahaz does evil in the sight of the Lord. He would be Josiah's son, and he only reigns for three months. And then Pharaoh Necho grabs him, takes him to Egypt, and then takes his brother, Eliakim, who is also known as Jehoiakim. Okay, Eliakim, Jeho- Eliakim and Jehoiakim, same names. And he, uh, he pulls him, uh, he, he takes his brother to Egypt and he says, you are now going to, the, to be the king. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years, also does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, like his brother, but let me remind you, unlike his father, the Chronicles material says, no one turned to the Lord as much as Josiah did. No one ever turned as much as he did. And yet his two sons are absolutely wicked. So he does, not, um, he does not follow him, and then all of a sudden, King Necho really doesn't have much to do with it. Babylon is now front and center, so this would be about 20 years later. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon removes him, Eliakim or Jehoiakim, removes him from power and takes him to Babylon along with the temple vessels. So can you just tell things are just disappearing? That now all of a sudden, Jerusalem's, you don't even need to besiege it, they're in it. They remove all of the vessels. Well, not all of the vessels. They remove the majority of the vessels. He strips it. And by the way, the reason why this happens is because King Nebuchadnezzar says to King Jehoiakim, hey, I want you to, to, to give me money or I want you to recognize my power. And for a while he says yes, and then he says no, and then there's all of this problem that goes back and forth. So King Nebuchadnezzar removes Jehoiakim and then sticks his son, Jehoiachin, in his place. So Jehoiachin, which would be Jehoiakim, who is also Eliakim. Yes, I spent some time this afternoon memorizing those things. He reigns for three months. And here's, I thought this was amazing. I think in the, I think it's in the Chronicles material. It says three months and 10 days. (laughs) How bad are you that in three months and 10 days, it's already really bad? 
He reigns for three months and 10 days, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back and he takes him to Babylon and he replaces him with his brother Zedekiah. Zedekiah reigns for 11 years. Surprise, surprise. Does what is evil, just like his brother, just like his, I guess his grandfather, but unlike his great-grandfather, he literally, he reigns, rejects. He specifically, there's a, there's a text in Chronicles where Jeremiah comes to him and he just won't have anything to do with it. So he rejects the teachings of Jeremiah and then after finally rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem is burned and the temple is destroyed. The end. Everybody's dead. <laughs> kind of depressing, right? Like seriously, that's how all of this ends? Kinda? Kinda, sorta? It's really um, somewhat anticlimactic, right? I mean, we're, we're coming out of Egypt and we're really, really excited. We're gonna go into this new land and God's gonna bless us with this new land. And before, hey, whoa, whoa, before we take this new land, let me remind you how this land works. Like this land is not just any land. This is land that had some very wicked inhabitants in it. And I brought you to judge them. And you're my people. And I've blessed you and I've freed you. And now I'm asking you to follow me and don't trust the Baals. Don't trust the Asherahs. Don't trust your own kings. They'll lead you away. Remember me. And it just seems like every time they can't do it. Every time they, 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 they look at the world around them and they believe they have the ability to do it. They think they know how to figure it out. Um, they believe their customs, their rituals, their uh, witchcraft, whatever you want to describe it, they think that's the answer and they're wrong every time. And God over hundreds of years is incredibly patient and then his patient runs out and they're judged. And by the time this is done, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, Why? And this is why when you go back and you read the Deuteronomies um, or the Deuteronomy material, I just don't want you to think that this was an accident. Like why is the Bible spend so much time? Well, because I just don't want you to think that somehow like this is random. Like I, I love looking at my own life, at the own, my own failures, at my own um, heartache, at my own, right? And I, what I wanna always pretend is like I've done nothing wrong. I've been a great person. But no, there's a lot of heartache is by me not following the Lord, not following his ways, not doing his things. And the Lord will not be mocked. And yet, if you were to ask me what my greatest story is, it's one of grace. I don't deserve the kindness that he's given me. I don't deserve the ultimate hope that I have. But he is just that good. And that is the story of the king's and the prophets. But let me just read to you, I thought this was really fascinating. Let me just read to you the final verses of Chronicles. You know how I said to you like in the prophets, they just can't leave it alone, that they have to kind of end on a positive note. I thought this was interesting and I, I guess I knew about it, but I'd forgotten about it. So the Chronicles material, you have the destruction of it and so Nebuchadnezzar comes down, city and temple are completely destroyed. But let me read to you how it, it, how it ends, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. This is Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36 in verse 20. He, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped the sword, and they became servants of him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
So even though Jeremiah's dead, <laughs> and even though, you know, God's word is going to get to the, its, its final say, it will be fulfilled. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. And so God is giving the land a sense of peace because the people in it wouldn't do it. And then, just in typical God fashion, he can't leave it there. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, so this is 70 years later, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. And he put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let us go up. <laughs> and so Chronicles doesn't end in this kind of rather sad, depressing state, but it is the restoration of the promise so that one day the Messiah would come. That is how it ends. Let me pray. And so God, I thank you for uh, the time to study this semester, and I thank you for um, being a part of a family like that, that God, we're not here studying someone else's history. Uh, we are not theological orphans. We are not spiritual orphans, but we are your people. And therefore, Jeremiah, although he doesn't speak directly to us, still speaks to us. And that, Father, in the same way that um, there have been people in the past who have been called by your name and been led by your spirit, that is now us. And let us not think casually about the responsibility that has been given to us. Father, as we look at world events, may we see them through your eyes as we care deeply for this incredible community that you've blessed us with, may we see it through your eyes. God, as we look at our families and our marriages, may we definitely see them and love them through your eyes. And so we thank you for the work that you have done, uh, Father, for the work that you are doing. Uh, we long for the day uh, when we can see you face to face. Until that time, we will just say repeatedly, Maranatha. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, and we will see you Sunday.